Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World podcast and in what is fast becoming a regular tradition here on Physics World we are gathered in the ever more crumbling shed at the bottom of my garden to discuss the Physics World book of the year and we do that in December so it's cold in the shed although we do have some new heaters so I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by some rather cosy people in Tushna Commissariat. Hi Andrew. And Martin Durrani. Morning, Andrew. I feel like I should apologise um, before we begin to all our readers that I sound a fair bit more croaky and husky than I usually do. It's the um, blighted end of the year cold that I'm suffering from, so I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Martin, anything to report? Well, I fell off my bike a few days ago. Um, nothing too bad, but my ribs are hurting. So don't make me laugh because I might wince and make some awful noises as we go through the podcast. So we'll have a very dull and husky podcast for you with no laughter. As I say, this podcast is about the Physics World Book of the Year. Uh, We will, at the end of this podcast, announce the winner. There's a short list of 10, which you can see on the Physics World website. Perhaps you could just remind us of how it is you've gone from all the books that have come out about physics this year to this short list of 10. Every year we review many books on Physics World, so this year we've reviewed a grand total of 54 books. Um, and so what we do at the end of each year is we sort of look at all the books we've reviewed in the year. The criteria that we have for our Book of the Year award is that are the books, well, first of all, are they well written? Um, are they novel in that are they covering a new topic or are they covering a topic that we've covered before, but in a, in a very interesting and new way? And are they um, scientifically interesting to physicists and scientists? Well, a lot of our books are reviewed by external reviewers. So we like to go back to those reviewers because they often have very strong feelings about the book and ask them what they thought about the book and um, whether they thought that the books should be on our shortlist depending on these criteria and then we sort of factor in all of their views and um, what we on the team feel uh, and we pull together a shortlist of 10 books and in fact this year there was an 11th book that we really liked I didn't quite make it onto our shortlist um, because it's a bit on the lighter, funnier side, but we really enjoyed it. So it got a special mention. So if you'd like to go and take take a look at the Physics World blog to look at all 11 books on our shortlist this year. One excellent book, Andrew, that we ruled out because I wrote it with Liz Callagher <laughs> was uh, Furry Logic, The Physics of Animal Life, Bloomsbury Sigma, um, because that would be unfair to it, it put that in the shortlist. Excellent though it is. Oh, well, if, if if we're plugging our own things, then um, you can hear a podcast all about that book on my own podcast recorded in this very shed, The Cosmic Shed. So if you go back and look on thecosmicshed.com and look for Furry Logic, you can find me, Liz and Mateen gathering here in the shed to talk about it. But it's not on this short list, although it should be on everybody's wish list for Christmas. Yes, it's a very good read. As an author, has that given you an insight more into what people have written this year? That's a very good point. I mean, yes, I do appreciate more uh, what people go through in writing books. It's not something you do in a rush, and um, you do quickly become quite knowledgeable about certain topics, which brings me nicely into one of the books on the shortlist, The Death of Expertise, which is by a guy called Tom Nichols, who's Professor of National Security Affairs at the US Naval War College. And this book is very timely because it's all about, in this internet fueled age where people can find answers at the click of a button, is that the real experts, their advice is getting ignored or downgraded or dismissed because, well, what do they know? They're just intellectual 
eggheads who trying to tell the rest of the world stuff that we can find out quickly ourselves. Um, and so he um, puts this down to a number to a number of reasons. Um, for example, he has a real pop at college courses in the US being more about having a nice time than actually learning stuff. He talks about search engines where people can find stuff out very quickly. He has a pop at um, online news sources where people can make fake news up and claim things even though they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> it's easy to think, well, this is just a, a, an old man grumbling about the modern world. But it's an entertaining read, very timely given the election of President Trump early this year, who still, as we speak, has not appointed a chief scientific advisor which all previous presidents going back the last 30 or 40 years would have done very quickly. And President Obama was um, had a couple of physicists um, in that role. So President Trump seems to think uh, he doesn't need any scientific expertise, which is going to be dangerous when some scientific issue blows up in his face and he doesn't know what to do to deal with it. And the danger is he'll deal with it badly because he hasn't got that advice from someone who knows what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And the idea of people knowing what they're talking about is how he kind of defines an expert. I mean, you can be an expert in another way, a kind of technical expert, someone who comes to clean your carpets is a technical expert, but he's talking about people who know more about a certain topic than other people, and we should cherish and value those people. Yeah. I think it's important to point out that, you know, in this, in this sort of era where people don't trust experts, actually, people still do. Of course they do, because um, no one's building their own cars at home, no one's performing their own surgeries, no one's, you know, trying to fly their own planes. What people seem to disagree with is things that they can very easily disagree and dispute with, especially when they don't agree with their own world views, for whatever reason. So it's things like people suggesting that maybe the Earth really is flat, or not listening to political experts when they talk about the sort of impacts of Brexit. Um, or vaccinations and the sort of trend towards anti-vaxxers. It's these decisions people make where, in a way, they're almost, they're not immediately impacted by them. The classic case of that is, of course, climate change. You know, these people feel like this isn't affecting me and I have a valid view on it because I've spent a week on YouTube watching videos. Um, and, and, and so that means that people do have this sort of disjoint, you know, where, they, where they're perfectly happy with certain experts, but not with other experts who challenge one small portion of their worldview. Um, and yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how we're going to solve it, but mm. I think a really important thing there is about scientists maybe being quite frank about how science is done, how it's not always that they come straight to the right responses, you know, they, they, it takes many, many, many iterations of it going wrong before they hit upon the right answer. and Going back to the idea of the flat earth people, I think you know they're just basically cranks who think that. And in The Death of Expertise, Tom Nichols isn't just talking about scientific experts, he means lawyers, doctors, um, policy experts, of which he himself is one. Um, and the thing about scientists is you can't become an expert unless you've trained as a scientist and done many years of study. And if you had, then you wouldn't think the earth was flat. Um, so scientists benefit from the fact that it takes a number of years to, to get to that level, which is almost all the more worrying why in the other book that we mentioned on the shortlist, Not a Scientist, by Dave Levitan, where he identifies instances, mostly in US politics, where politicians ignore or cherry pick or mistrust or deny or mangle scientific facts to suit their political purposes 
um, climate change being one of the many that um, they do that because the, the reason it's called not a scientist and President Reagan famously in 1980 said well I'm not a scientist but I think the gases coming out of Mount Helena erupting in 1980 seems to be a cause of you know various problems in the environment. This idea that because you're not a scientist it, it doesn't really matter you can still have a view on something. Yeah. It's funny because it sounds to me when he when, when he said that what he's saying is I have literally no idea what I'm talking about but here's my opinion anyway. But here's a, that's a really important thing, I think, as human beings. We're constantly fighting our feelings and our intuition versus the facts. And, and you know, we're always told, go with your gut, go with your gut. And that might be true in certain cases. It might be true if you're trapped on a desert island or you're walking back home, let alone at night, and go with your gut about walking down the, you know, lit part of the street. But very often our gut is extremely wrong. It's full of sort of logical fallacies and biases that we've been slowly accumulating over the years and so it's really important to teach people don't go with your gut please stop step back you know make a much more rational and well-formed decision I mean the other point Dave, uh, Tom Nichols makes in the death of expertise is that just because um, experts can sometimes be wrong and indeed they are wrong doesn't mean that we should ignore everything they say and one example that he gives is Linus Powling the Nobel prize-winning chemist who in the 70s um, started believing that vitamin C was a miracle product that could help all sorts of um, med medical purposes. So he was wrong on that, but it doesn't mean we should dismiss experts just because they occasionally get something wrong. Overall, they pretty much do know what they're talking about. And the other thing scientists are is that they're very well versed in having limited knowledge about something. But just because you don't know everything doesn't mean you don't know anything. Um, and scientists relish is what they get out of bed in the mornings to find things out about the universe. We don't know everything about the universe, which brings me on to one of the other books in our short list, We Have No Idea, by Daniel Whiteson, who's a particle physicist in California, and George A. Cham, who's the cartoonist behind PhD Comics, which is a comic strip that you'll see if you wander into any science lab in the common room or on the door, and it's all about the, the lives of PhD students. So what they've done is to write a book about all the many things that we don't know in the universe, in the cosmos, such as dark matter, dark energy. And it's, it's almost a breath of fresh air compared to the other two books I was talking about, because um, it's openly admitting we don't know what we've talked, we, some of the science that we're trying to study, but it's done in a very playful way, very informative way. And the cartoons from George A. Cham, which he's drawn specially, really um, help the book along and give it a very light touch. Um, and that's one of the reasons why that was on our shortlist. Well, it's definitely a theme among the books this year. And we talked to uh, Dave Levitan in our June episode of Physics World podcast. If you're interested in this question, I really recommend that, that podcast. And somebody else who I spoke to for this podcast in the September episode was Angela Saini with her book Inferior. And that has made the shortlist as well. Yeah, indeed it has. So I must say that Inferior is one of my favourite books of the year. Um, the tagline for the book is How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story. Um, and I can already hear certain people saying, oh, well, of course she likes it. She's a woman. <laughs> um, think this, you know, books like this and research like this really benefit everyone in society equally. Um, and so Inferior is really interesting. It's not necessarily a book about women in science, but it's a book about the science of women. And this rather 
a sort of maddening, inferior, erroneous and insidious idea that there are certain um, physical, physiological, psychological and, and neurological differences between men and women that give us certain traits, you know, and, and off of the basis of those, the, these ideas and these so-called traits that men and women possess or don't possess, um, you know, there's, there's so much that we base on that and there's so many decisions that we make off the bat of that and it's just completely wrong and nonsensical, um, you know, and it's, it's something as simple as, oh, men and women have different kinds of brains, that, you know, right from like their brain sizes are different. And, you know, that this is something that I heard so much growing up and it's so easy to believe it because the news stories would say things like, well, they've done brain scans. Now, there you go. You've done a fMRI scan. How could that possibly be wrong? But, you know, what you don't know is how much of a difference the scan really saw, how many scans they did, how many people they did the scans on, um, you know, and it's things like this that Angela really like wants to unpick. And Angela herself is an engineer, you know, she, she studied engineering at Oxford and then she, she sort of moved much more into journalism and um, works for the BBC now. And this whole book began because The Guardian asked to write an article about menopause and she kind of felt, oh God, menopause, of course I'm a Woman, so they're asking me about menopause but she decided to sort of go back and investigate sort of the history of menopause and you know it's absolutely shocking what she found out and as late as recently as the 1930s menopause was thought of as a disease a disease that drove women mad apparently and that this was this was regularly accepted you know and it was a lot worse, even in, in times like the Victorian era, where it was thought that women were just going crazy, that they were no longer useful, beautiful, attractive, you know, all of these kind of terms. And, and basically that if you were a woman who had gone through menopause, you would just husk of your former self. The treatments were sometimes lethal and, and, and women were put in uh, insane al asylums and things like that. You kind of think, that, oh, all right, maybe it was really bad back then. Once sort of endocrinology sort of once the, the science of that developed and they realised, oh, OK, there's, it's a hormonal change. But then by the 60s, so just, just 30 years later, um, now it was considered that, oh, well, OK, there's a way to tackle that. So why don't we sell hormone replacement therapies um, to women as this sort of amazing anti-ageing thing? Because there's no way you'd want to go through menopause. And it was amazing that it took until the 90s when people realised that it was really dangerous yeah. giving women these cocktails of oestrogen with sort of no real control and for no good reason apart from to keep them youthful, you know. And there's so many stories like that where the kind of science done behind it is so bad or so shoddy um, and then gets so quickly misrepresented and picked up in the media. Yeah, it, it's almost like it's unstoppable. Angela tackles a lot of these issues in Inferior. We go into it in more depth in the September episode of Physics World, but I'm noticing on the table in front of me a book which was made into one of my favourite films of the last, well, not even this year, the last 10 years or so, Hidden Figures, and it's the book that inspired the film. It's one of my favourite films too, and I think um, it's amazing because it tells this really inspiring story that I can't believe is not more was not more widely known before now about this whole group of African-American women um, who were hired as mathematicians and basically helped the US in a big way win the space race. You know, and they all worked at um, NASA's Langley Field 
campus in, in Virginia. And this was because there were labour shortages during the Second World War. And um, all of these women were really good mathematicians in their own right and were hired and did a lot of the work. You know, they were, they were the female computers back in the day when we didn't really have computing um, like we do now. And in fact, some of them were key in making computing what it is today. And so Hidden Figures, which is um, written by Margaret Lee Shetterly, um, the book, and you know, it was such an inspiring story that it very quickly got picked up and made into this award-winning film, uh, you know, that and, and, and I think it was amazing that so many people, when, when it came out, especially the film, were like, my God, how did we not know this? Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, these women were just sort of, well, they weren't even written. They were, they, yeah, they were written out of history, but they were never written into it in the first place. That it was just deemed unnecessary. Why mention them? They were just some people, you know, back there. And and this was still at a time when they were dealing with, you know, as the film shows in in some kind of really heart wrenching ways, dealing with things like um, still having segregated um, bathrooms and toilets, mm. and um, you know. So, so not only were they dealing with the stereotypes of women in science, they were dealing with the stereotypes of black women in science at that time. The person who reviewed the book for Physics World had said that there's too much cultural references in the book. There's too much about what was going on in America at the time. Um, however, it was very interesting. We got a comment on the review by somebody who, who actually said, on the other hand, he found that really, really useful because for him, he wasn't aware of any of that stuff. Um, it may be ingrained in black culture as... Um, uh, and very well known for him it was actually invaluable to have that insight that's right yeah the book has a lot about the civil rights movement of the time and you know what else was happening politically and yeah i think uh, maybe our reviewer she was she was so entranced by the the story of the women you know for her it was they were such um you know they were such key figures such such important role models and she identified with their stories so much that she just wanted to hear about that you know which is which is fine and great but i think for other people maybe understanding the cultural um, references of the time and what these women were dealing with is is especially where this book does really well um you know that, i believe that your reviewer was uh, renee horton that's like renee horton uh, who him, you've spoken to I, yeah we before. had her on the cosmic shed talking about the film of hidden figures it may just be that she was very busy and, and wanted to just get through it because she's working on the space launch system. That's right. So she is working at NASA. And exactly, I think that's why we picked her for our review. You know, we always try and sort of match our books to people who um, would have a certain appreciation of them, you know, and we, we wanted to see if someone like Renee um, was truly inspired by the story, and she absolutely was. The book and the film has these four sort of key characters and um, they're Dorothy Vaughan, Mary Jackson, Catherine Johnson and Christine Darden and and you know sort of Catherine Johnson especially and Dorothy Vaughan since this book and film have come out they've they've had they finally are getting the recognition that they deserve they're, they're finally being venerated as the trailblazers that they were for, for not for the science that they they did and you know Catherine Johnson for example she's um she um she she won a presidential award under President Obama you know NASA is now building an entire science center named after her so 
at least with Catherine and some of the others, they're still alive today. Um, but another book on our shortlist, which is The Glass Universe by Dava Sobel. Now, that book is about um, women who are very clearly dead today. So you could say, oh, well, does it really matter? You know, do these stories matter? And yes, absolutely they matter because they give this idea, they, they permeate this thought that women were just not involved in science and it's only a very new thing, which lets people say, oh, well, you know, women are just getting into science, really. It's only in the past 50, 60 years. So give it give, give it some time for the situation to improve. And mm. that's patently untrue. Yeah. So the Glass Universe goes back to sort of the early 1900s. And this story is all about the women who were hired um, by the then director of the Harvard College Observatory, um, one Edward Charles Pickering. Uh, and once again, these women were referred to as his human calculators. Um, and this is, I mean, to me, it's a very fascinating story because Pickering employed almost 80 women during his 42 year stint as director, um, which is amazing and fascinating to me. And it is so positive. But at the same time, it's so funny. Some Pickering did really well by hiring these women. It was a very positive thing. But at the same time, one of the main reasons he hired them was because he didn't have much money to run the observatory. He didn't have enough funds to hire 80 men to do that work. So he thought, okay, I can I can get about four women for the price of a man. But at the same time, he was saying things. So this was um, very much sort of just around that time where women were still fighting for the vote. But the very first um, colleges for women had come out. And there were lots of women going and studying, but really not doing anything with their degrees. So he thought, it's great. They're trained. They're less fussed than these men. Um, I'll hire them. I'll give them jobs. I'll give them money. But I won't pay them as much. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're sat in Bristol here and the Glass Universe reminded me of um, Cecil Powell, who was one of the Nobel Prize winning physicists who won the prize in, um, for his discovery of the Pymeson here at Bristol University. And he had a, a, a group of women who were asked to look at the photographic plates for particle tracks. And they were called Cecil's Beauty Chorus. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, this is quite recently that, you know, a group of women were dismissed in that way as just a bit of prettiness to liven up the men's lives in the lab. I, I mean, it's hard to criticise people like Powell. He, he's not here to defend himself. Those are the mores of the time. Yeah. Um, and actually, even publishing a book like Hidden Figures, um, I wonder how much a challenge it is to get these things published. One of the other books on our shortlist is Marconi, The Man Who Networked the World by Mark Raboy. So this is about Guillermo Marconi, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, and I would just wonder if you go to a publisher and say, oh, I want to write a book about a man and it's about this important man and the publisher who might be a man will go, yes, let's publish a book about a man uh, because I'm a man, you're a man and this is a book about a man. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's those kind of subtle things that, yeah. um, you know, so well played to people like Margot Lee Shetterly for writing a book like Hidden Figures. I don't know if it was easy to get it published or not, but... Um, you can imagine the first time you publish these biographies, you have to cross a certain hurdle just to get them published, just to get the stories out there. Um, so that's why one of the reasons why I think we put that on the shortlist, ditto um, The Glass Universe. I should I should say that one of my favourite stories from Glass Universe is about this wonderful Scottish woman called um, Wilhelmina Fleming. You know, if, if you're a, a sort of um, into the history of observational astronomy now, you'd probably have heard of her because she did so much categorising and that, you know, so she sort of, you know, she, she identified 10 supernovae and more than 300 variable stars 
And much to my delight, she was the one who discovered the horse head nebula, which yeah. is, you know, one of mm. those Hubble images that, you know, we, we love today. And it was her who picked it up in 1888. This is, uh, you know, a certain sli- slightly apocryphal, but the story goes that Pickering would sometimes get so frustrated with the abilities of his sort of all-male computing group that he would shout to them that his Scottish mate could do better. And it turned out she bloody well could, <laughs> you know. And there's so many other women like that in the book, you know, names who you would have definitely heard of, like Annie Jump Cannon, you know, who um, was, again, so critical to so much modern um, observational astronomy that we know today, or um, Henrietta Swan um, Levitt. And yeah, that's why I think it's really important to tell these stories to make sure that if women were written out, as and where you can dig up these tales so that we can stop only naming Marie Curie every time someone asks you to name a female scientist who's, you know, your hero. Um, I think it's really important to tell these tales. Absolutely. And we've picked a couple of themes from the shortlist this year. Obviously, one being the theme of women in science and the other being about people mistrusting expertise and how the political landscape intersects with science. There are some more, if you like, straight physics books on the shortlist, and that full shortlist is on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com. And they're all really very worthy of your attention. But we do have to pick a winner. I think, you know, Martina and I sort of debated it a lot this year. There's such interesting books in the mix. Um, and we kind of went back and forth on it, didn't we, Mateen? Yeah, we also, as Tushna said at the start, we went back to the reviewers and we asked them, would they put the reviews that they'd written, um, would they put those books on a short list? So we got some input from them. We took sounding some people in the Physics World team. But, you know, we have to pick one winner and Tushna? I'm very pleased to say that the winner of the 2017 Book of the Year Award is Angela Sayini's Inferior. It's so novel, it's so well written, it's tackling this really difficult and thorny subject and we think it's going to spout um, so many other books, so much further talking point and already since the book's come out, um, Angela's been on this sort of you know, worldwide book tour and talking to so many girls, young girls in schools, and it's already kicking off this movement, you know, and I'm so pleased by that. And I think it's so important for all physicists and all scientists to be thinking about these things. And so Inferior is our winner for the year. I managed to catch up with Angela and here she is. Angela, congratulations. Thank you. I'm thrilled. I mean, we talked about it in the podcast uh, back in August, I think it was, maybe September episode. But but what was it that made you want to write Inferior? Um, well, a few things. Firstly, um, a lot of uh, the information that we get about women in the press and even in scientific journals tends to be very um, contradictory. You know, so sometimes we hear about men and women being completely different. You know, women can't read maps and women are no good at driving and men are no good at listening. Um, And other times we're told that actually we're just the same, that the research shows that psychologically there are very few differences. So really I just wanted to get to the heart of that riddle. What does science actually say about men and women? What is the true extent of the sex differences between us. Um, And as it turned out, the reason that the research itself is so contradictory is because there's so much controversy within these fields themselves. So when scientists are researching sex difference, it's a minefield. There's bias that creeps in, there's prejudice, of course, but also the 
outcomes themselves often have layers and layers of speculation put onto them, which means that what we get as the public is a very skewed picture of what the research actually says. So, so I think it was that controversy and the contradictions that really fascinated me as a journalist, that within science, there can be such wild disagreement on this issue of uh, gender. And women, as a subject of study, really are a scientific battleground. Okay. And when you were researching the book, was there anything that could have stuck out to you as being a surprise or that you weren't expecting to find? You know, even though I've often been the only woman in the room. So, for example, when I was at university, I was the only girl in my class. When I was at school, um, it was the same in my chemistry and maths classes. Um, So I always there was always a gender imbalance. But engineering itself is about hard answers. So, you know, the, the answers don't change depending on your gender. I was very surprised within biology that they really can vary so much um, depending on the gender of the researcher, depending on the bias of the researcher. So um, that really astounded me, given my academic background. Um, But then perhaps it shouldn't, because, you know, scientists are human, just like the rest of us. So, of course, they are going to bring their prejudices to their work. Um, And I guess what, what it's taught me, the process of writing this book has taught me to be far more critical about what I'm reading and not to take any one study at face value. This award isn't in a vacuum. There's been a, there's been an awful lot of positive response to it. Could you tell us what how it's been from your point it's of view? It's been an incredible year because um, since the book came out, you know, you never know as an author how something's going to be received, whether it will resonate with the public the way it moved you when you were writing it. Um, so it's been incredible to see actually a very positive response from all... Um, at least in the mainstream media, all quarters. So even the Daily Mail gave it a really good write-up, which really surprised me. Perhaps it shouldn't, but it did really surprise me. So, And even the Spectator recently gave it a really nice write-up, um, which is surprising, again, because I've had a run-in with Toby Young for, of the Spectator on Twitter. So, yeah, that last comment actually reveals where the dissent has actually come from. So I have had some trolling on Twitter from people... Um, you know, on the far margins of science or sometimes outside of science altogether who very strongly believe um, these kind of very old tropes about men and women, about gender. Um, And that was difficult to deal with this summer when the book first came out, but I did a very good job of blocking them on Twitter. So actually, I don't hear them very much anymore. And in fact, there aren't that many of them. The fact that I'm blocking them managed to screen them out altogether. And I didn't block that many people. um, I think it's quite revealing. It just shows that even though this is a very vocal minority, it is very much a minority. It's only it's only a few people. Is there anything that can be done to get the message across to those people if they just immediately reject the evidence as it comes to them? Well, I would hope that they read my book and um, other books that I cite in my book. And there is some wonderful research going on in the field of sex differences that challenges um, old ideas, that um, sometimes even overturns old theories. Um, And I think it's very important, if we want to be well-informed, to read everything. The fact is that the research isn't clear yet. We actually don't have a full picture of the nature of sex difference, um, and certainly not the full picture of human biology. I mean, we're so far away from understanding the human brain, for instance. Um, So there has to be a degree of humility there. And anyone who wants to talk about 
research in this area and certainly anyone who wants to use sex difference research as a way of formulating policy or making any kind of diktat on how we should behave or how, for example, um, equality legislation should be or diversity initiatives within universities should really take the trouble to read the full you know, set of research out there to really understand the research as a whole because taking single studies is really not enough. I've learnt writing this book, and, and as I'm sure most researchers already know, when it comes to human behaviour, a single study is really just a snapshot of a certain group of people at a certain time in a certain location. It really doesn't give a full general picture of human behaviour. Um, and I think that's where the danger is. The people who exploit this research for political ends, um, and there are many of them now, um, often rely on single studies, sometimes just a single graph. I mean, the number of times I've been sent a single bell curve to try and prove that this is, you know, some kind of hard evidence of gender difference is really shocking. It's been fantastic that the response, especially from female scientists on Twitter, but actually scientists in general on Twitter have been very supportive. There's been a small group of people, including Jess Wade, who wrote the wonderful review um, of my book in Physics World and has been such a champion of the book. I really, I'm so grateful to her. Um, but she suggested um, I do a university book tour. So I did. <laughs> and the universities are really um, receptive. The turnouts have been amazing. It's ju It just finished this week. Um, I mean, we had 200, 300 people at some of them, and it was just astounding, the kind of um, questions we were getting, um, the positive reception to the book. I've just been so honoured and touched by um, the people who have turned out. But it, it's so exciting to see um, that the book is making some kind of an impact in an environment in which women have are already kind of um, geared up to do something about the problem of um, sexism and harassment uh, within their fields. Okay, so you've, you've been on a book tour, you've won this award. Is, does Inferior go to bed now and you move on to other projects? Well, I'm, I'm still doing book tours. So I'm going to Mumbai this week um, to do a book fair there. Um, and I'm going, I'm traveling quite a lot next year because the book is coming out in different languages across Europe and South America. So I'm, I'll be traveling a bit then as well. Um, but I have started my next book, which is on race science. And if you thought that inferior was controversial as a topic, then um, this one will be even juicier, meatier and far more controversial. Oh, amazing. We look forward to talking to you about that, no doubt, for the podcast at some point in the future. But thank you so much for talking to us and congratulations again on winning the award. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm honoured. Thank you. One really useful thing that I'll find for signing his book is to be able to show it to people who write to me as editor of Physics World about women in physics and what, why we why do we have all these programs to support women in physics we, we don't we don't need that uh, we, you know they, they, there's something intrinsically um, unsuited to women to doing physics and this book will show that that's manifestly not true um, and in fact some one person wrote to me recently saying criticizing articles that we've had in physics world about women in physics saying oh this equality nonsense uh, yeah you should soon be recalled renamed uh, women's world um <laughs> it's amazing isn't it oh, that this person thought that they should write in in this day and age and tell us that it amazed me <laughs> so, so that that person is um one of a number of people who write to physics world from time to time 
being unhappy about our coverage of women in physics saying we don't need this stuff um, uh, and the reason there aren't so many women in physics is because women are somehow intrinsically unsuited to the subject um, and they base that on nothing in particular and so this book would be required reading for people like that. I, I would argue that possibly quite a few books on the short list <laughs> would be required reading for those people but don't let that put you off do get in touch with us if you have anything to say about this short list this podcast or anything else we do love to hear from all of you uh, you can tweet us at physicsworld or write to us via the website physicsworld.com congratulations to everybody on the short list and of course Angela Saini for winning and thank you so much to Toshna and Mateen for joining me here in the Cosmic Shed. And we'll be back next month with something else from the 2018 year of Physics World. Physics World.